everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And this is Ian Rowe, also a senior fellow at AEI. And Naomi, it's great to see you today. Nice to see you. We yes. have a special, special episode today. Yes, we have a special episode. <laughs> Usually we have a third person, a guest, uh, but you have been doing some incredible uh, writings and research, and unfortunately, stories about some terrible incidents from a child welfare perspective in New York City. And I think you're highlighting some areas of our Child Protective Services uh, Agency here in New York that are emblematic of challenges going across the country. So today, you and I are going to talk through some of these uh, reports that you've been doing. And and in particular, there are two horrific incidents that have just occurred in New York City in homeless shelters of young children that were murdered by their parents. But before we even get into the complexities of those two particular incidents, can you just paint a picture of what is going on with the Administration for Child Services, which is uh, ACS, that we often use that acronym. We saw that recently uh, there's this draft uh, report, uh, sort of this racial equity audit that has occurred. What's going on in these agencies, particularly around race, which certainly then serves as a backdrop for some of these incidents that you've been writing about? Yeah, so, I mean, I think these, um, I think a lot of these agencies and, and ACS in particular seems to have lost the thread. Um, they uh, commissioned a report, a draft of it was released, um, uh, not through ACS, but through some advocates. And it was the subject of a New York Times front page article uh, last week, or, you know, depending on when this podcast comes out recently, um, which basically asked the question, you know, is our uh, child welfare agencies racist? And this report, uh, you know, essentially you know, they, they start with the conclusion and then they write the report they want to. Um, and so this report was meant to investigate questions about racism and equity um, in the Administration for Children's Services. Um, they basically uh, questioned, surveyed about 50 uh, child welfare workers at the agency, which has thousands of employees. Um, they only questioned- by, by the way, many of whom are uh, non-white, is that right? Well, yes, absolutely. Most of the employees at the agency are non-white, but but in order to participate in this survey, you had to be non-white, actually. So, you know, you're already sort of focusing in on a particular segment. Um, but, you know, not surprisingly, uh, the, the folks who volunteered for the is this agency racist survey think the agency is racist. <laughs> I know you're shocked. Um, it, and it's not only, of course, that, you know, there is a selection problem. It's also that we constantly hear repeated over and over again this notion that um, there is systemic racism in child welfare agencies. If you go through a social work program, if you go through a child welfare training program, you will hear this repeated over and over again. It will be beaten into your head that you are part of a racist system. And so when they come around with these you know, uh, complicated surveys asking you these important questions, of course, you're going to repeat back to them you know, what they've been telling you for the last who knows how long. Um, so this survey you know, uh, report was basically... Uh, you know, they lay out the purposes here. It's to, um, uh, you know, explore equity issues in the child welfare system and also to decolonize, 
decolonized child yeah. welfare. That's that's their word. Um, and, and and I'm curious when you know when these accusations and and we'll get to you know decolonization. How is it proved that these systems are racist, particularly given that predominant numbers of people who are actually working in these systems are non-white, and obviously most of the children are non-white? What's the proof of the claims of racism generally? Well, the proof of the claims is always in racial disparities. And, you know, this is what you hear repeated on the left over and over again, racial disparities equals racism. That's that's the formula that you have to keep using in order to believe this. So, so it is absolutely true. And I always say this on the podcast, and I say this in my writing, that Black children are investigated, uh, that Black families are investigated by child welfare agencies at a higher rate than they are represented in the population. They are removed to foster care at a higher rate than they are represented in the population. Um, they are in congregate care at a higher rate than they are represented in the population. These are things are absolutely true. Absolutely true. The, but, 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 uh, go ahead. No, the one statistic they never tell you is about child maltreatment. They never tell you that Black kids are about twice as likely to experience abuse or neglect, according to federal data as white children. And they never tell you. And, and and a lot of people say, well, you know, well, that's all just your perspective. I mean, it just depends on who's looking at it and who decides that it's child maltreatment. But how do they explain away the fact that Black children are three times as likely to die from child maltreatment? I mean, that's not a, a matter of perspective. It's just you know, is that child alive or not? At the end of this year, when we do our counting, you know, you want us to look at this and the percentage of black children who are dying from abuse and neglect has been going up. It is it is very disturbing what is going on here. Yeah, and, I, and amazingly, I just want to add this statistic because the New York Times, which, you know, did a report on this report that we we're talking about, they actually, you know, I, I kudos to the reporter went and did their own analysis. And they looked at New York City over the course of the last several years, and they found that Black children were seven times as likely to die from homicide as white children. I mean, and, and Asian children. Yes. How can you look at those statistics and just say, well, we should be just investigating everybody at the same rate so that our spreadsheet columns come out even? No, I, I, I saw that analysis of 83 child homicides. I mean, it's it's uh, it's it's horrific when you look at this and just the denial that the rates that are often cited as the source of, you know, um, you know, it, these disparities must be due to racism and in, in the investigations and the denial that it's not linked to the actual unfortunate maltreatment of children. What do you think drives that? And then let's get into these specific um, incidents, because this is the context that these organizations, you know, because ACS evidently now wants to become an anti-racist organization. So, but what do you think blocks someone from making that linkage between, yes, they're more dis they're disproportionate in this investigations, but why would you be surprised given that there is a disproportionate um, rate of actual damage being done to children? Well, I think there are a couple of things going on here. I mean, first, I think if you acknowledge that there is a difference in the rate of damage being done to children by their own families, 
um, you would have to acknowledge some real problems, you know, in the black community, in the way these families are living and operating. And as you know, from all of your conversations about family structure, about, you know, single parenthood, about violence, about the way families view education, that, yeah. you know, nobody wants to have these conversations. They're very uncomfortable conversations to have. And, and the immediate assumption is, oh, you're just blaming the victim. Actually, I'm not blaming the victim. I'm blaming the people who are hurting the victims and the real victims here are the children so so i am you know i'm saying that there there are uh it, that, that not all families in this country look the same and it turns out that black children who are that children who are living in a home with a non-relative male and that was you know true in at least one of the cases we're going to talk about um uh were a um are, are 11 times as likely to be as abused as children who are living in a two-parent married family. Yeah. Yeah. And and you just can't get away from that. I'm not saying that every family where there's a mother and a stepfather that something terrible is going to happen to the child. No one should ever misinterpret what I'm saying. Yep. And nor, nor is this isolated just to black families. Right. Right? right. This is true. White families, too, and Asian families and Hispanic families. The problem is that there are a lot more of these black families as a percentage than there are white families. The, the family structure is not evenly distributed in this country. Correct. In the same Correct. way that lots of other things are not evenly distributed. Correct. And so it would be crazy not to acknowledge that. Yep. Okay. 100%. So now let's dig into these specific cases because it's really important to, it's not just theory. These are real children. So tell us first about Shaquan Butler and what happened to this three-year-old child and what the warning signs were before the tragedy of that occurred. Sure. I mean, I think, you know, there is this popular assumption that child abuse and child neglect is something that goes on behind closed doors, that we couldn't possibly know about these things in advance. How would you how would you realize what was happening? You know, families, you know, they they close their doors. They don't invite public agencies in to observe them. And, and we wouldn't know. In most cases, that's really not true. And so Shaquan is a, an example of this. So he was, he was a three-year-old child. He died of blunt force trauma to his torso. Um, he was found unconscious at his parents' apartment in a Queens homeless shelter. And I just, I really want to emphasize that because, you know, the idea that you could conceive that that this is all happening behind closed doors and it's happening in a homeless shelter it's literally happening under the eyes of public agency workers um, of course it's not surprising that the administration for children's services had already been involved in his case in fact they deemed him and his siblings to be in enough danger that they had actually removed uh shaquan and his siblings from their parents custody um only about you know, two months before his death. And then they basically return them because, you know, this is what is driving the child welfare system, as I say over and over again, is concerned about the rights and the feelings and the sensibilities of adults and not children. And they think, you know, oh, these parents deserve their children back and we should find whatever way we can to reunify them. And ACS even thought that, um, they even said apparently in court that they didn't think that even if they would return Shaquan, they certainly didn't think they should return his younger sister. Um, and then the judge actually even overruled ACS. Um, there's so many 
people in this system with a driving ideology of family preservation and family reunification at all costs that they are really overlooking the dangers to children. Because in addition to the fact that the homeless shelter knew what was, you know, probably knew what was going on, certainly neighbors did, um, and ACS knew what was going on, the, the parents here are, you know, to say they are known to the criminal justice system would be a, <laughs> a vast understatement. His, his Shaquan's father had been arrested 24 times as mm. just as an adult for gang assault, inciting to riot, criminal mischief, petty larceny, grand larceny and weapons possession. And his mother had been arrested five times, including for weapons possession. So so the idea that you're like, oh, well, you know, uh, maybe this is a mistake and the kids are really OK and we're just going to send them back to these parents who are clearly well-meaning and, and only want their child's safety. I mean, come on. What would you have to be thinking in order to send these kids back and assume that they were going to be safe after you had made the determination that they needed to be removed? Right. No, no. It's, I mean, it's, it, it, we have to get upset about these things. So who was ultimately responsible for Shaquan's death? Well, it, it looks like it's still under investigation, um, whether it's uh, the mother or the father or both. Um, but but, you know, basically it's it's some combination here. And, um, you know, and I mean, <laughs> that's that's who's directly responsible. But there are a lot of, um, yep. you know, aiding and abetting. there's a lot of aiding and abetting. You know, I'm not saying that in a legal sense, but there there's a lot of uh, people who should be really hanging their heads in shame um, about what happened here. And of course, you know, this was, the story came out, it was horrible, you know, and then as you write about just two weeks later, two children, Deshaun and Octavius, two brothers, three years old and 11 months old, also perished, also in a homeless shelter. Let's talk about their circumstances and then let's try to weave these two together of what were the common missteps? What was what was you know what was just incompetence, and how should things be moving forward? Because this I mean, it's just outrageous. So what happened with Octavius and Deshaun? So here you have a situation uh, with the you know the 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 mother um, was clearly suffering from severe mental illness. I mean she was she was uh you know regularly found by by neighbors you know uh to be just ranting um to be screaming at her children you know who were you know basically babies um you know about you know you should take this effing bottle and you know the rest of it and um and she was posting weird things on facebook and she was ranting about demonic possession um you know and again i mean when when the night that that the children were found murdered she was you know running around her kitchen naked and setting things on fire. And I just, you know, you have to ask yourself, this is not the kind of mental illness that just develops overnight. Like people see this. And when, of course, the papers went to interview neighbors, they're like, we know she's crazy. We've offered her help. We've tried to like intervene. Probably some of them have called, you know, called reports in about this, although that, that has not been revealed yet. But that is certainly a pattern of something that happens again and again. Um, again, you know, we know that ACS investigated this woman at least once before. Again, living in a homeless shelter, like it's very hard to get a lot of 
many people would complain it's hard to get a lot of privacy living in a homeless shelter. And so the idea that all of this can go on under people's noses without anyone doing anything is is just shocking. And, you know, she apparently stabbed both of these children to death and let them left them under a pile of wet clothes. Um, the father discovered them. He did not live with them. Um, and, you know, and and again, we have to ask ourselves, like, why why wasn't some kind of intervention done earlier. Um, and, and by the way, you know, mental illness, it's not clear that mental illness was an issue in the first case uh, that we talked about, although maybe that's also an issue. Um, but mental illness is an issue in a lot of these cases. And just like mental illness is demonstrating itself in people pushing other people in front of subways or, you know, uh, wandering through the streets of New York, screaming at other people and throwing things at them, you know, their mental illness is out of control too in the child welfare system. And you see adults who are clearly incapable of caring for especially young children. Um, and, and for some reason, you know, we think it's their right, uh, you know, to, to have these children with them when it's clear that they're posing a, a significant danger. Right. I mean, it's hard to hear these stories and not start with the supposition, like what is going on with the social workers and the ACS folks who are tasked to protect children. But let's for the moment, just let, let's give them the benefit of the doubt and, and say they care about kids. Like, what, Where is the disconnect when an ACS worker sees that mom who you says just stabbed to her two children? Where, where do things fall down, do you think, in this, the inability for this information to be discovered, acknowledged, protected? Where does it break down? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, some of this starts in the training. You know, we were talking earlier about the messages that are offered to um, child welfare workers, CPS workers, you know, through um, social work training, through uh, the agency's own training is very focused on these questions of equity, racial disparity. Are we tearing apart Black families unnecessarily? Um, and so for them, you know, they, they don't want to be part of the problem. I mean, who wants to be a part of the problem? Who who wants to be like, oh, I, I, you know, it's my job to go into these homes and take children away from their families. It is a, it is a very hard, emotionally taxing job. And then we add to them the burden of, by the way, you know, you might as well be engaged in slavery. I mean, the one of the top federal officials wrote an article a few months ago where she compared, this is a federal official in charge of child welfare, wrote an article where she compared child welfare workers to overseers on plantations. Oh gosh. So you are, if you are a child welfare worker on the front lines, what is in the back of your mind? You're like, I don't want to be part of the problem, part of the racist system that is tearing apart these families. I want to get them back together. I want these children to be with their parents because, because I don't want, I'm not an overseer on a plantation. Like, I think it's very clear what the motivation is. And unless we provide folks with like real evidence of what is happening and what their job is, you know, we cannot expect them to do anything differently. This is fascinating. I mean, that same audit, the draft audit um, document, you know, they lay out a future of ACS. And this is to your point about messaging. They actually say in the document, we want to build ACS toward 
a longer term decrease, not necessarily in a number of children who are being maltreated or obviously dying. They say they want a longer term decrease in the number of poor black and brown families who were investigated by yeah. ACS. Yeah. Right. So, so why is that the goal? We the, the the goal is to more children in healthy, stable situations, not reducing the number of investigations. Because you can get to their goal is see no evil, hear no evil. That's it. Like you know, if you if you want to just cover your eyes, you can pretend none of this is going on. Okay, so is that leadership then? So because <laughs> right, because obviously that can't the be the opposite of leadership. <laughs> no, no, I'm saying yes, the, bur I know. The, the burden of responsibility then. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's definitely in the leadership. Um, you know, this is this is a uh, you know Eric Adams. You know, has has a lot on his plate these days, but this is something he needs to add to it. He needs to look at this. You know. Every, you know, he in the morning, he looks at the paper and he sees another story about dead black children. And then he picks up the draft report from ACS of how we want to investigate fewer families yes. and and, you know, create more equity. And he needs to ask himself, there is, you know, there's a real disconnect going on here. And by the way, this is not just a New York problem. This is a California problem. This is all over the country. The, the child welfare agencies have become infected with the idea that their main goal is racial equity. And their main goal is not racial equity. It is protecting children from harm. And that's what it should we, be, right. That's, and the more we expand their, you know, their role into promoting family well-being and racial harmony, whatever else they want, the less we are focused on the primary goal here, which is ensuring that children are safe from harm. Wow. So I saw that in response to when you posted this story, the New York Post, um, someone wrote, you know, it would also be helpful if conservatives wouldn't consistently call for the abolition of child protective services. Because I think it's important because I don't think you're advocating for that, right? So, oh, no. I mean, I right? think there's a real need for it. Yes. Yeah. So so what is the appropriate role? Like, like obviously, if we prioritize safety and um, ensuring that children aren't harmed, that should be the priority. But what should this government function really be doing? How would you really reform CPS in ways that there's an appropriate role for government here? Well, this is what I mean. There are definitely, you know, libertarians who think we should have, uh, you know, a less intrusive um, child welfare system. And, and you know, there are, are certainly abuses of child welfare systems, like, you know, people who are getting, you know, uh, you know, too concerned about parents homeschooling their children or things like that. Or, you know, when CPS is called because you let your eight year old walk to the park by themselves or, or you know, left the, you know, your your kid in the car while you ran to the dry cleaner. I mean, you know, you read about these abuses sometimes and you just think, oh, come on, like, does anyone have any common sense left? And a lot of times they don't. And I get that. Um, but I have to say, like, these cases are really in a small minority of cases. Um, you know, most of the children who are being taken into foster care and most of the children who are being severely abused and neglected are under the age of three. These are not like free range children, like where, where we're yeah. like, 
oh, you know, I let my two-year-old, you know, wander to the park by themselves and now CPS is on me. But no, that's not what's happening. Um, you know, a lot of these cases, as we've talked about a number of times, involve substance abuse, parents who simply cannot manage to properly supervise or even get medical care for very young children. And these young children, because they're not even in school yet, often have no ability to report to other adults what kinds of crazy dysfunction is going on in their household. So I, I think what we need to do is put CPS in proper perspective. As conservatives, we believe there is an important role for law enforcement in maintaining safety in our communities. And we know, of course, that the, the importance law enforcement is even more important for the most vulnerable communities and 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 for the most vulnerable children, you know, kids who are living in these very dangerous homes, you know, just saying, oh, we'd rather have racial equity than child safety is is going to have an impact on, you know, a disproportionate impact on black families, on poor families, um, because those are the children who are not going to get saved. And so I just think as conservatives, we need to put this in perspective and understand there will often be government overreaches and we should be on the lookout for that. And we should be willing to say, like, you know, if if you're going to harass a family because they let their eight year old walk to the park by themselves, like we're going to do something about that. And and but but we also have to keep in perspective that CPS should have a very core function. And, you know, you hear these days, oh, child welfare agencies should be engaged in this kind of prevention. And you have federal officials saying that the role of child welfare is to promote family well-being. I mean, this expands the role so much that they're not able to perform the core function, which yeah, is- Yeah, even, even in this document, they talk about the need for ACS to start combating poverty. Like, it's, hello, that's not that's not your role. Right. So are, where are there bright spots that you've seen where it sounds like New York and California are having these issues, where are the bright spots and what are those areas doing differently to have better outcomes for kids? I don't, I don't think there are a ton of bright spots right now. Um, I mean, I think that the, in terms of understanding which kids are most at risk, um, you know, I have often talked on this podcast and written about um, the use of predictive risk modeling to actually understand what the risk factors are. I mean, if, you know, an, an algorithm, you know, is, is not obviously going to decide whether a child has been abused or not, but if, you know, a call comes in and what the algorithm is sort of doing is processing data like father been arrested, you know, 24 times for violent crimes also lives in this home, uh, you know, or, you know, family living in, in homeless shelter and has already been investigated by ACS several times or has had kid removed. You know, those are the kind of things that should be setting off alarm bells. Not only does that mean that those kids should be investigated faster. I mean, you know, a lot of these agencies are overwhelmed with calls and we have to do triage. We have to ask ourselves, like, which which family do we need to go see most urgently? And obviously these two kids would have been on that list. But we also need to ensure that if for some reason, you know, we keep investigating them, you know, that these cases are flagged for someone yeah. higher up to say, like, wait a second, like, let's take another look at this family because they've already been investigated several times. Clearly something is very amiss. You know, mother ranting about demonic possession, like maybe we should do something else. Yeah. 
Is there a role for civil society or faith-based organizations that that is appropriate here? I mean, I think that the role for a lot of those organizations and, you know, for civil society generally, in, in some cases, is being performed. I mean, you it it is not uncommon in these cases to hear about neighbors who not only have just re- who have reported these people but who have reached out and say like you know can we help do you want can i watch your kids can it, you know can i refer you to like maybe this church maybe the church can give you some kind of um you know if if you if you need some kind of help you yeah. know there are programs like safe families where they'll you know if if you actually have enough of an understanding that you're in trouble I think there are programs out there and, you know, private nonprofits that can definitely help you. And the government, frankly, can also offer you help. Um, But with these cases, I think they're they're past the point where we can just say this is a civil society, you know, uh, role. So let's end on a hopeful note, (laughs) you know, 50 years from now. Well, A, more children are being born and raised and married to parent households, so there's less of a need, right? Yes, Ian. <laughs> because we're teaching the success sequence and other things That's in right. school. That's right. But what else will have happened over the next 50 years that these issues that we're seeing today aren't happening? Is it just better formation of stronger families? Or are there reforms that have occurred within the child welfare system that were able to catch these kids who are legitimately in distress, but our systems are better designed to support them? What will have happened to make that happen? So, I mean, in terms of the causes, look, I would love to see family structure change. I would love to see, you know, better treatment for substance abuse. I mean, I, I think... A lot of these families really are suffering from, you know, chronic addiction and mental illness. And, you know, look, I hope, you know, medicine and science has reached a point in 50 years where we're better able to treat people who have these problems. Um, I do hope that we have systems that are better able to um, figure out which kids are most at risk. Um, I think child maltreatment is something that's always going to be with us. Um, yeah. You know, and the, the question is, as a society, um, you know, what what are we doing to to stop it and ensure that kids are safe? Um, and it, it's I think there's there's there are limits there. But um, but looking at family structure, substance abuse and just making sure that our our systems are operating better and that the people who are um, doing these investigations and making these decisions in court are better trained to understand um, what's really at stake here. And what's really at stake here is not racial equity. Yeah. And prioritizing, truly prioritizing child welfare and what's best for the child above all else. Yes. Naomi Schaefer Riley, thank you very much. These are powerful issues. I'm really, it's very important that you're on it because. Okay. It'd be very easy just to dismiss this and ignore. So thank you. Thanks, Ian. And um, thanks for everyone for listening to another episode of Are You Kidding Me? You can get this podcast on the AEI podcast channels or wherever you get your podcast. So thanks again for another listening episode. Thank you. Take care.